Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. In 2009, Shamir Karkle and several colleagues created the first digital only bank of its kind in the U.S. Struggling to describe the benefits of a bank without branches, getting funding was a difficult process. As it turned out, Simple not only grew, but was one of the first neobanks to be acquired by a legacy financial institution, that being BBVA of the United States. When Shamir tried to generate interest for his new financial startup, Scylla, he generated $5 million in funding in only a few months in a marketplace that readily embraces fintech startups today. We are joined by Shamir Karkle today, the founder and CEO of Scylla, who discusses how innovation in banking industry has changed since the early days of Simple and what the prospects are for innovation and the digital banking transformation process in the future. Welcome to the show, Shamir. Good to see you again. Same here, Jim, and thank you so much for having me. I feel like we've known each other for probably more than a decade now. Yeah. And uh, it's always good to catch up with old friends and talk about how much the industry has grown and evolved. But fintech is definitely having a moment right now. You know, it really is. And, you know, it had been a long time since we saw each other. I, I think it was either at Money 2020 in New York or it might have been an EFMA event in Barcelona. You show me the town and show me the architecture and let me experience the food. And certainly a ton has happened since we spent time together. In fact, you sold Simple to BBVA in, I think, 2004, joined BBVA as the head of Open APIs in 2016, and then left BBVA to start your fintech firm, Scylla. So what has that journey been like over the past decade? And how has it felt to see many of the neobanks actually following the footsteps that Simple put in place to serve communities more open to digital banking? It's been an interesting journey, right? I was always the guy at Simple who was responsible for the banking part of the the relationship on business, really, which meant that I handled all our bank and processor relationships. I designed most of kind of like the backend architecture, even coded a little bit of it, actually. And and we, we you know, there was lots of complexity and lots of things we had to change over time, Did ended up doing a couple of large migrations. And then I went to BBVA and built two API platforms there, one in Europe and one in the US. And now I'm, you know, Scylla is an API platform as well at the core of it, right? And so I feel like in some ways I've been doing the same thing for the last 12 years, <laughs> but each time it's a different business and a business model around a lot of the same underlying processes. Part of the problem is that at, at the core of it, US banking and financial services hasn't really changed that much. And when you talk about it, you you know, so much happening in the fintech space. I don't even know how many fintech and crypto startups that are out there. There's at least, you know, tens of thousands, right? Yeah. And but but you look at it all and you're like the global financial services industry is a 17 trillion annual revenue industry. So the largest industries out there, right? Like it, the global GDP is not made up of advertising. <laughs> you know, advertising is like a thin, it's like the, 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 you know, it's like the froth on top of everything, right? GDP is made up of like, you know, manufacturing and transportation and financial services, agriculture. For that. uh, that, that's what the real economy is all about. And the internet has only really started to transform that real economy in like the last 10 years. And especially when you look at financial services, everybody from PayPal to Scylla, combined is not even 1% of market share, right? 
and yeah. you're like, where is the rest of it? Where's the remaining 99%? It's with 30,000 or more financial institutions globally, right? Banks, wealth managers, it's, it's changing. And in some particular sectors, it has changed quite rapidly in the last few years. But overall, we're still barely uh, at step one of this journey. And it's not a journey that's going to happen in like the, the blockbuster movement of banking is not going to be in a year or two years or even five. It's going to take decades. It's just too large to change yeah. any faster. And, and society can't allow the financial industry to just be revolutionized overnight. Too much chaos. But I do think in this decade, there will be a lot more change happening. A lot of companies will will take over more and more sectors. And we are beginning to see even the large incumbents realize that. Neo banking, of course, is, is kind of near and dear to my heart. Neo banking, challenger banking, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I, I, when Josh and I and Alex started up Simple, we didn't really think we were starting a revolution, right? Or maybe we, maybe we thought we were starting a revolution, but we didn't think we were starting a wave of like startups. If you had asked me in 2012 how many neobanks there would be in the US in 2020, I would have said five, maybe 10. I think it's probably over 100 by now. Uh, yeah. and there seem to be a new one every week. And a lot of them are doing quite well. I mean, the if you look at folks at like Chime, for example, I think they have maybe over 10 million customers now. Yeah. And there's quite a few in that 1 million to 10 million range. Um, now, there's a lot of issues with like profitability and business models. Building a business was never easy. It hasn't magically gotten easier now. But I think what has become clear is that very large businesses are being built. And not everybody will succeed, but some will. And those that do succeed will be hugely massive and valuable. Well, so it's interesting. So our research at the Digital Bank Report has found that digital transformation at traditional banks has been exceedingly difficult. Some of the challenges include legacy leadership paradigms, the, the lack of data maturity, outdated infrastructure, and the lack of an innovation culture. You've worked at both fintech and legacy banking organizations. What's the biggest challenge that you think is being faced by legacy banks today? Because as you said, it, we're not moving quickly by any means. I think the the problem of like banks in general, and I saw this especially at BBVA, is that even when the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Mm. <laughs> so it's the, the, yeah. the whole history of banking and financial services is, you know, it used to be pretty unregulated, but that was like, you know, in the 19th century, right? And there's been waves of crises going back to like, you know, in the 19th century, there was a financial crisis every seven years uh, in the U.S. And, and they finally got tired of that and, and created the Federal Reserve. And more and more regulation came in through the New Deal, throughout the post-war period. And, and, and the whole goal of society has been like the financial system has this tendency to blow up and we can't afford that. So we're going to regulate it to make sure it doesn't blow up and becomes kind of like a regulated utility. Um, while the financial services industry has always tried to find ways around those regulations to get become more profitable, right? Um, and and the kind of the, the, the end result of that is that banks, especially, but kind of all financial institutions, all by design, are very slow moving, right? Like the internal processes to get anything done are extremely complex. It's never easy, right? Like if you go to a large organization, right? Like 
Verizon or Apple or anybody that's a non-bank, you will find that large organizations don't tend to move fast anyway. <laughs> Size brings, you know, it's, it's problems, right? Banks also have this massive layer of regulation and compliance, which slows things down even more. Well, and, and they're, they're, you know, the problem is the regulators and compli compliance people are all legacy bankers. So it, it's not like that's going to help push it forward. It actually holds it back because they're, they're sometimes the most tenured bankers in the business. Exactly. And it's not like people are uh, they're bad people. It's just that they don't get it, right? And, and you, can't, you can't ship until they do get it. <laughs> so you have to spend a lot of time internally just on education, yeah. on, on, on helping people understand, okay, I'm going to go and serve startups. Are you aware that there is such a thing called a startup, typically in Silicon Valley, but could be anywhere, and this is how they operate, and then this is the services we are going to offer them, and this is how it's all going to work. And then after you have explained that to, you know, maybe like 75 people, you get to the point where <laughs> you can actually have a discussion about the product and the business and what are the, you know, the real risks of it, right? That itself, it just ends up taking months, years, in fact. And so the, 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 the speed of execution yeah. that is possible at a startup is just not possible at a large organization generally but definitely not at a bank. And that, that's by design, right? That's when the spirit is willing, right? Like that's when the top leadership is aligned and gets it and really pushes hard. Then yeah, right. you find that the bigger problems tend to be the, the internal processes and compliance, risk, legal, even internal technology, right? Like they're a stakeholder too, and they have a complex back-end system with like multiple layers of technology accreted between like 1975 and 2005, <laughs> right? So they don't necessarily want anything to rock the boat too much because if it breaks, it's on right. them, right? Oh, exactly. And so oh, yeah. that's, that's a big problem. Even when you have top-down support and real leadership driving the change. If you don't have that, then you're going to get nowhere, <laughs> right? So you find many places that the spirit is also not really. So, you know, BBVA... I believe is is one of the leaders in the industry from an innovation culture basis, and and I I'm comparing it to the world of banking. So it's it's against a subset that that isn't all that innovative to begin with. But even at BBVA, I was surprised with the lack of embracing what Simple provided and really blowing it out in a in a big way to get scale and the things that obviously were needed to make it successful. You know, is that part of the challenge that even when it's, I'm going to say on a platter, nothing's that easy, but you know, when it's waiting there for them, that even then it's not as easy. We saw, I mean, we've seen Chase close down their digital banking unit. We've seen other organizations try and, and not succeed. Is it because the forces of continuing forward the same way is more powerful than, than change? It is. Um, and there's another factor that happens, which is, I think, a, a big thing at like larger institutions, which is the, just the, the kind of the tyranny of size, right? So if you look at it, Chime is, I don't know, it's a whatever, 10, 15, 20 billion valuation company. It's a de decacorn, hugely successful. A and yet if you put it in, in like the list of US banks by revenue, it wouldn't make it into the top 50. And right. I'm not sure where it would probably make it into the top 100, right? Um, and that's that's probably the most successful, definitely the most successful neobank in the US, one of the most successful in the world. And so you're like, 
most of the actual numbers for these companies don't move the needle for a large organization, yeah. right? And yeah. so you get to this point where you're like, hey, doing anything takes years because you can't, this is financial services, uh, you can sometimes bend the rules, but you can't break them. You, you can only move at a certain speed and the, you know, the, the large institutions and the large banks have real problems. So you can't do things very fast, which then also means that that impacts your growth rate. And then it's like, you know, you can start at like, whatever, 10 million in revenue and get to 50 million in a, or 100 million in revenue. In the startup world, that would be like, oh my God, you're a unicorn, right? right but in, right. The, in a large bank, it's like, this isn't even, Nothing. you know, it's we have a, 24 units division. which are bigger yeah. than this, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and you're sucking up all this capital and you're not add, moving the needle much, right? So I think that tends to become a bigger problem is just the impatience of like, hey, we invested yeah. X and now here we are three or four years later, where, where are all the results? And it's like, well, this is actually performing better than 90% of the banks out right. there, but that doesn't mean that it's moving your needles because you're, you know, you're so much larger, right? It's so, the quarterly, having to respond to the quarterly uh, completely, reviews and reports and all right? that, yeah. You're, you're like, hey, you get uh, evaluated based on your uh, metrics as a public company. So in an ecosystem that's increasingly impacted by big tech and pay tech firms, which kind of companies do you think will thrive and which will get crushed by the powerful forces at work right now? And, and what will be the biggest differentiator, do you think, between the winners and the losers as we look in the future? I mean, there's, there's two separate worlds that I understand at least reasonably. One is kind of the traditional banking and financial institution space. And then there's the kind of the, the world of like, you know, modern fintech and crypto, right? And of course, they overlap and in fact compete, but they are very, very separate worlds in the way that they operate in the people who are in them, the, the, the way the metrics matter, right? Like for an early stage company or even a mid-stage company, customer growth and revenue growth are hugely important. When was the last time you heard, you know, Jamie Dimon talk about the number of customers that Chase has? <laughs> it, it, it's yeah. not even a metric that they, that they really care about. I'm sure it's somewhere in there. Uh, it's all about profitability, right? So it's very different metrics. And I think for the traditional bank world, I, I suspect you're going to see, like, especially over this decade, as the pressure from the new world becomes intense on every aspect of, like, the entire traditional banking, financial services value chain, you're going to see that it's going to become probably like a barbell. The very largest guys, the Chases, the Bofas, the, the Goldman Sachs, look, they have huge scale, they have a huge customer base, and they do have a lot of capabilities which like nobody else really has, right? Like if you're going to do go do a $10 billion IPO, or you're going to do a $50 billion uh, loan or whatever, like you're going to go work with one of these top five banks because who else has the balance sheet and the scale and the ability to do these sorts of things, right? Uh, so the large guys are not going to go away. They'll probably lose some business on the margins and some of them are trying to innovate. I mean, Goldman is doing a lot of cool stuff with Marcus. Maybe oh, yeah. they can actually yeah. win some on the margins too, right? But So they're not going away. They'll probably stay, I would guess, roughly the same size-ish across. Some may win, some may lose, right? And then I think the smallest institutions, which are like the really small local community banks and credit unions, people don't go to them for sort of products and, and kind of coverage. And people go to them because they, 
they value having that small business relationship, right? Like it is really the, the, the backbone of those is not even really their consumers, it's their small business relationships. And I think the the local coffee shop or you know lumber mill owner is going to stay with his local community or bank or credit union because he's been with those guys for 20, 30 years. He's not changing just yet, right? He might get in a get a, a square terminal to process transactions or whatever, but still the core relationship will stay with those. I think the ones in the middle are going to be heavily challenged. Well, I'll tell you what, Shamir, that's exactly what our research shows. And everything that we're measuring from innovation culture to data use and and CX and everything else, we're seeing the middle being squeezed tremendously. As you said, the small firms have their niche. And as long as they meet the the basics of digital banking, they'll do okay. The big firms are going to be able to, to... do okay. Those mid-level firms, they're struggling right now from the standpoint of they have the the worst of all worlds. They have the legacy leadership. They don't have the funding. They don't have the scale. They they don't have the ability to do the things that are needed like the big banks can do. And they're yet they look like the big banks to the local community. And and now we're seeing a lot of them, you know, trying to combine. Well, I come back from the uh, the 70s when they had the um, Resolution Trust Corporation that brought together a bunch of bad savings and loan things and they make a good bank. And that doesn't happen because you don't really change the stripes. You know, that's that's the big challenge is that just by getting bigger doesn't get you to where you have to go. And then I think the the maybe the last one on that scale is, is maybe PNC, right? And you look at it now yeah. with the acquisition of the US BBVA business. It's getting to whatever, like 500 billion in balance sheet size, something like that. And I'm like, the next one after that is probably Capital One. And then there's a pretty steep drop off, right? And yeah. I'm like, it's 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 somewhere there. It's not just the top four, but it's not the top 50 either, right? Somewhere between that yeah, four agree. and 15 is where you would draw a line and say, the guys bigger than this have the scale. They'll still be here a decade from now. And, you know, they'll figure out some businesses and, and, but the ones between sort of 15 and like 100, I would worry about them a lot just because I like being a a regional bank or even a super regional, I don't think it's going to be enough a decade from now. And and you see the amounts of money that fintechs are raising and you're going to have pressure from the bigger guys above you as they get better at it slowly and with lots of missteps, but they'll get better at it, right? And you have the pressure from the the fintechs and, and it's just going to get crushed in between. And and I I mean, I get why PNC is doing what it's doing, which is to be like, hey, let's get make sure that we stay in the too big, <laughs> too big to fail and, and too big to be out-competed yeah. club either. It still takes culture. And the, and the reality is I, I don't usually position PNC Bank as having the most innovative culture overall. They're a good bank. Yeah. They're a strong bank. But on the other hand, I, I, I see U.S. Bank as a completely different entity from the standpoint of innovation. I think they're one of the leaders on the innovation scale. But, this is it, fair. you know, it, it can be interesting. And I think that's the thing, right? Like if you look at U.S. Bank, they are very strong in payments processing and always have been. And, and I think that's the thing. If you're like a mid-sized regional or even a large community bank, you know, you're in that one, you're in, probably in, let's like, say, even like 250 million to like, 100 billion range, which is a large range, includes a large chunk of US banking, figure out which is what's going to be your strategy for success. Are you going to stay at that niche where you're going to be like my local small business and 
medium size corporate community loves the heck out of me and wouldn't care even if I made them do everything on paper, <laughs> that's fine, you'll survive. Or am I going to find a line of business, whether that's auto lending or payments processing, where I'm going to be the best in the country? Or am I going to get so big that I can go out and compete with Chase? If you're not doing one of those things, I just don't think business as usual will work anymore. Yeah, I agree. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021? Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey. Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience. And you're trying to make it so that more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation. If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products, and services, and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level, I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit Microsoft.com slash financial services. Welcome back to Bank of Transform. So I'm joined today by Shamir Karkul, founder and CEO of Scylla and co-founder of Simple, the first digital-only bank in the U.S. We've been discussing Shamir's perspective on the past decade of change in banking and where the future might hold. So we're in an amazing time of transformation of banking over the past decade, and the competitive battlefield has certainly changed. So Shamir, since the pandemic, has the awareness of what is possible in the digital world from firms like Instacart, Zoom, Netflix, and Amazon increased the table stakes for what consumers expect from financial institutions? I think so. I, I think the, the nuance there is that there's always been a segment of customers who expected a lot more from their financial institutions and weren't getting it, right? And that segment of customers was what Simple tapped into a decade ago, what the folks like Betterment and Wealthfront and TransferWise and Square all tapped into, right? Like across different products. And what I think has happened is that there was also a segment of customers who were kind of fine with banking as usual. They still went into their branch, maybe just much less now than they used to 10 years ago. They used their bank's crappy mobile app and it kind of worked. It kind of didn't. They made it work. And, and that, that trend was changing, right? Like more and more people were beginning to use everything from like Simple and Chime to like Cash App and Venmo and TransferWise and all of them, right? I think what's happened is the pandemic is a structural change. Even you know, your 80-year-old grandma who did everything by walking into her local bank branch, last March, she had to figure out how to use a mobile app, 
Because yeah. otherwise yeah. she had no access to financial services for like two months. And so I think everything, and you can see it in all the metrics that have come out, is this step change in like just people being forced to adopt in case some cases kicking and screaming, right? Uh, and yeah. then once they've made that change and then lived in that world for a year, now as vaccinations spread across the developed world and hopefully the developing world, we're not going to go back to the old normal. We're going to get to some sort of new normal. Nobody really knows what that's going to look like. We'll figure it out, right? right. We'll build it. But whatever that new normal is, people will go back to some of their old behaviors but they'll stick to a lot, lot of the new behaviors. It's going to be a lot of people who are like, you know, why wasn't I doing this, it, doing it like this for the last 10 years? <laughs> you know, why did I ever yeah. go into my bank branch to, to send that uh, monthly rent payment for my villa in Spain? I could have been using TransferWise since 2012. But, you know, so that, that, that change, once it's forced, a lot of those behaviors will stick. A lot of people have been exposed to the new world, even if they didn't want to, they had no choice. And now that they're there, they're like, it's not bad. I am going to order a lot more takeout than I used to even before. I'll go back to being eating at restaurants. I love them and I want to support them. But I've defaulted to just doing takeout and eating at home or eating in the park. And now I'm like, it's a behavior I'm used to. I want to do a lot more takeout. The same thing is going to happen in, in financial services as well. And so a lot of this behavior will be sticky. And remember that the ones who are the best at innovating and saying, hey, we see a customer trend, is seeing that customers like this, let's grab onto that and let's market the hell out of it. Let's tune that and optimize for conversion. That's not the large traditional banks, that's the startups, right? So I think they will latch on to this and this trend will continue. Well, it's interesting because one of the major changes we've seen in the last three to four years is that financial institutions now more than ever realize they can't go it solo. They've got to work with solution providers, fintechs, and others to not only amplify their innovation process, but even to support their back office functionality. And as we're looking at platformification, embedded banking, banking as a service, infrastructure as a service, all these different elements, we're seeing a whole new wave of fintech firms coming out that are really supporting the movement of other fintech firms and traditional banking firms. And, and one obviously is, is your firm, Scylla. And I want to talk a little bit about what is Scylla? And what is the mission you're out to achieve as it relates to the banking ecosystem as we know it today? Totally. So the mission of Scylla is to make money programmable. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit uh, through kind of my own personal journey here, right? So I used to be a McKinsey consultant uh, working with large financial institutions and processors. That's when, you know, Josh sent me an email 12 years ago saying, let's start a retail bank. And that's where Simple came from, right? Yep. And, and I used to think that what you really had to do was just get a license and from the Fed and get a few servers, buy a core from Fiserv or FIS, Bob's your uncle, you got a bank. How hard can that be, right? What I realized is that, that, that that's a viable way to start a bank. That's how most community banks got started. And you know, when there used to be a lot of new de novo banking. That isn't a viable way of doing things for a modern tech startup, right? The, the, the technology piece of that, Fiserv and FIS and Jack Henry and, and kind of the whole traditional banking service providers were cutting edge technology around 1980. 
come 2010, they were like two decades behind the times. And so if you want to provide a modern interface to your cu customers, if you want them to be like, hey, I look at you know Facebook and Apple and Twitter and simple, then yeah, that, you, you need to have that sort of an experience, you need to build that sort of an app. You can't build that on top of like Fiserv or FIS or Jack Henry, right? right? So we ended up through a series, like this took like three years before between first email and launch, right? So it's not like we sat down and solved this problem, but through a process of iteration, we took some old tech like Bancorp's FIS Core and a modern processing platform from a company called TXVIA combined with a lot of our own code and built this kind of internal layer on top of which the web and mobile apps could be built and they could function the way they needed to. And it allowed us to build really cool features. Like we were the first, I think, anywhere in the world to give a customer the ability to tap a button on their mobile app and turn off their debit card and say, my debit card doesn't work anymore. And this really was just like an idea that uh, Josh used to take phone calls from customers. He actually used to go and do customer service, even when we had, you know, like a 50-person customer service team. And he would do it on Saturday mornings, because when else did he have time? <laughs> and there'd always right. be somebody who would dial in and say, hey, I woke up today morning, couldn't find my card. And, you know, there's like, what are you, you going to do? Block it, issue a new one. And then the customer would call back like three or four hours later and be like, I found it. My friend had it or I left it at the bar last night. And we were like, well, we can't do anything now, right? Like that card is permanently dead. You're going to just have to wait a week till you see a new one, right? And we were like, we can solve this entire problem by just letting customers, you don't know where your card is, turn it off. Go look for it. Don't find it, call us. You found it, turn it back on, right? And there's really right. just that little idea that then now it's become a very cool feature, right? But that was enabled by the fact that we built a lot of our own tech on the back end. It wasn't easy. It took a huge amount of time and uh, and energy. And uh, we always used to joke that like simple was like an iceberg. What customers saw was like the 10%. The underneath it was like the 90%. Right. Then exactly. when I went to BBVA, idea that really excited me was the opportunity to build a platform, to take that 90% and just build it once and offer it to everybody in the industry. Because if you go talk to anybody, right, like whether it's Simple, Chime, Betterment, Wealthfront, all of the early wave of fintech startups, they all ended up building their own tech. And it was like, why? Why does everybody have to solve these same sets of problems? We can just solve them once. So that was the idea at BBVA. And we did do it. We built the tech. We launched it. But the realization I came to is that the, just the tech and building really high quality tech isn't enough. Because another the, the huge problem in banking is technology is a big problem, don't get me wrong, but compliance and regulations are a bigger problem. <laughs> so it's leadership, you know, because, you know, you can, you can build the best tech, but if you don't have the right innovation spirit, if you don't have the right culture, if you don't have the right vision for what the future can be, it just becomes new tech. It does. And what, you, what, what customers care about is how quickly can I get my app built and launched and live? Because time is money, especially in the startup world. Everybody's raised their, you know, whatever, pre-seed, seed, series A, B, C, and they have 18, 24 months to, you know, hit their metrics to raise the next round, right? So that's a, it's a ticking time bomb and sort of a force that you don't find in the traditional banking world where it's like, ah, this thing slipped by six months, slipped by 12 months, who cares? <laughs> Startups are like, we go out of business. So time is money. 
And then the other part of it is the ones who are more sophisticated, usually the larger customers or the more experienced ones, they realize that it's not just about speed to market. It's also about stability and service long term. If, if you can get me to, uh, you know, get me to launch in like four weeks, that's great. But then once I launch, if I fall in hate with you within a month, that's not going to work either. You have to be a stable right. long term partner who enables me to, you know, build my business in all the ways that I want to build it. But at the same time, you have to get me to market quickly and efficiently at the start. And then I also would like to have like, you know, all the features and, and everything else. But those are the core things that customers need. Um, and we could never really deliver on that at BBVA because the internal bank processes just never moved that fast. They were designed for you know, right. a product cycle of like two to three years, not two to three weeks. Um, and right. so got frustrated by that and left. And I thought about like what to do with my life in like 2017 and decided I still wanted to solve this problem, but I did not want to solve it at a large bank. Right? And I may, you can argue that maybe it's not solvable at a large bank. At least I couldn't solve it at a large bank. And the, uh, the, the problem is like, you know, the, if you're a developer or an innovator or a builder, you wake up tomorrow anywhere on the planet and you're like, I want to program with email or voice over IP or SMS or any internet protocol, right? Like it's quick, it's easy. There's APIs, SDKs, ecosystems of providers. And the hard thing to do is to compete with Gmail because it's a really good product. But most people who are programming with email are not building superhuman or hey, they're just embedding some email functionality into their app, uh, you know, a, usually an existing app. I mean, it's quicker to do than it is to talk about it. <laughs> the moment you come to money, completely different world. I mean, remember, money is also just a messaging protocol at its core. But you realize that the world is not one place, whether you're in San Francisco or Shanghai, matters a lot. There's almost no APIs or SDKs, uh, definitely no ecosystem of providers. And if you somehow ever manage to build and ship your app, you'll realize that competing with Bank of America is much easier than competing with Google. But again, most people who are programming with money are not building a neo bank. There's a market for that. I don't know, there's like 100 neo banks in the US now, maybe more. But the vast majority of the market, just like in email, is folks who ha are embedding payments flows into some business app that they have already right. built or are building and you're like which business needs money and i'm like well that's like all of them <laughs> right so it, it is it is it's right. like email it is that intrinsic to uh, kind of all business activities right and our goal is to make money programmable in the same way that email is programmable you should be able to wake up jump on the Scylla platform build whatever you need and ship it and do it faster than you can talk about it now we're not there yet. <laughs> There's a the, the hard part of it. The tech is not trivial to build. There's a lot of tech that uh, we have to build and maintain, and and you know, taking what are some very outdated payment systems on the back end and making them truly intuitive and easy to use via an API platform is is quite tricky. But the harder part of it is still embedding all the compliance because if you tell that developer, yeah, you can build your app and ship it in, you know two hours, but it's going to take you two years to get through our compliance process. This doesn't work for anybody, <laughs> right? right? So we, you kind of have to 
manage the compliance, the regulations, the legal, and all the different parts of what make banking hard alongside the tech. In fact, you have to embed them both together and get that customer to market as, you know, as fast as they can code, right? So that's, that's our vision. Who are your prospective clients in? Are they financial institutions? Or are they retailers? Or are they both? Uh, it's mostly, I'd say, developers, builders. A large chunk of them are, uh, they look like fintech startups. And they're, you know, many of them are early stage. But, you know, it gets, uh, it is, it's truly a broad and diverse set, right? Like we have one company that's a public company. And they are, they're, they, they're in the real estate space. Uh, they're seeing a lot of disruption in their business from the pandemic. I mean, who the heck isn't, right? And they need to build something new. And their development team discovered us and started co hacking away on our platform, fell in love with it, introduced us to the, the larger corporate team. And, you know, six months later, <laughs> we actually signed the deal with them because they, they uh, you know, uh, they're a big company, right? So we, we get folks like that. And it's not so much the size of company, it's the problem set that we truly enable, right? right? Which is, if you want to build something which involves moving money around in a regulated industry, like if you're just doing online e-commerce, you want to swipe a card, put the money into a bank account, do that a billion times to sell goods and services, which is basically unregulated, go to Stripe. Stripe is amazing for this, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. And they, they have an amazing platform to really scale that in a way that we, we, we wouldn't be yet, right? But Stripe and most of the folks, the payment process out there will not touch complex regulated payments. So if you're doing fintech, insurtech, wealth tech, reg tech, crypto, commercial real estate tech, and every other type of <laughs> tech which is regulated, you're like, well, I have to do KYC and KYB. I have to worry about OFAC. I have to worry about AML and CFT. And that's just to get the user onboarded. Once you get the user onboarded, then I have to link their bank right, account securely. Exactly. And then they're you have to build and, that. And then yeah. I, what if I have to actually hold money for a period of 30, 60, 90, whatever days, right? And as part of some funds flow. Now it has to be, I have to worry about custody. I have to worry about pass through FDIC insurance and bank reporting. And we're like, don't worry about any of that. Our platform handles all of it. Just code, right? And our compliance yeah. team is amazing. We'll help you figure out, you know, what you need to do. You need to have your terms of service and your privacy policies and all of this stuff in place. Uh, we won't write it for you, but we'll give you a lot of guidance on how to put it together. We typically get customers from signing a contract with us to live in, in eight weeks or less. Wow. Well, it's, it's speed to market. As you've always known, it, it's speed and simplicity when you get down to it. So finally, what big change from your perspective? I mean, you're, you're, you're a long timer in this industry in the whole fintech and paytech space and everything else. What big change do you see coming to banking and to financial services and to fintech in the next five years? So my hypothesis is that in this decade, which is, you know, 2020 to 2030, we're going to see yeah. fintech broadly defined, including you know, crypto and wealth tech and everything, go from like one percent of global financial services revenue to like ten percent. So, even at the end of a decade, <laughs> this is still going to be dominated yeah. by the traditional companies, right? But if you take that, you're like that's a ten x growth, and where is all of that growth? A lot of it is going to be the big ones getting bigger. Right, So I think fintech in 2030 will be bigger 
than all of tech in 2020. So I think we'll see at least one, if not two or three trillion dollar fintech companies. If I had to bet, who would that be? Uh, PayPal, yep. Square, yep. Stripe. Well, it was interesting what you just said there. It's the the payments platforms are the building blocks for the new financial institution. Exactly. Not that it hasn't been in the past, but it's not checking accounts. It's not making a better checking account. It's new payments involved because people aren't going to be writing checks. They're not going to see it as any different. You know, my my son, I said it before on the show, my, my son, if you asked him, you know, how do you do your banking? He'd say Venmo. Even though he has a traditional bank account, all his money transfer, all the, the discussions and transactions that take place are done through Venmo. Exactly. Nobody wakes up and thinks, hey, I think I need a new checking account today, right? People are like, hey, I need to pay somebody. Uh, I need to buy something. I need to save for my kid's college education or I need to start thinking about retirement. There is some fundamental core need that customers have. And the ones who are good at understanding customers' needs and building experiences which solve those yeah. needs are the fintech. Yeah. Banks are still in the yeah. mentality of, okay, I need to sell somebody a checking account or a 529 plan or a 401k or whatever, right? And fintech is already disaggregating every one of those things and putting them together in ways that is, it's, it's some of the stuff that we, we, I see it a lot from customers. It's just super cool, right? I'm like, huh. I would never have thought of doing anything like that. But now that you have thought of it, I'm like, yeah, I can help you build it. And that is super cool. I wonder yeah. if it'll work. Yeah. You get to find out, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, and I get to yeah. watch from the sidelines is, is, uh, is, is how I think about it. And yeah, that's, that's all going to get transformed. The big guys are going to get huge. The medium-sized guys are going to get big. I do think that the kind of this wave of, of platforms uh, including Scylla, but that's, you know, we have competitors, right? And there's a whole ecosystem yeah. uh, across the space. Um, and, and I think there will be, I'd bet like probably like five platform companies that a decade from now are like unicorns to, to decacorns. And then you have the large companies which are decacorns or bigger today, right? Like Stripe, for example, at checkout.com, those guys, those guys could probably get even bigger and they'll add an extra zero to themselves. And the point is, even yep. after the end of a decade of growth, there is still potential for more growth because the 90% of the industry is still to be taken over. I do think a lot of the Western world will see the change happening this decade. The rest of the world will see it happening in the later part of this decade and next decade. But that could change. If you look at places like India, India has some of the most vibrant right. fintech ecosystem. And so if countries in Africa and Latin America and Asia sort of follow India's lead, you could see the whole developing world leapfrog the developed and exactly how it's going to play out, I don't know. <laughs> but this is yeah. this is my bet. Well, Shamir, it's always good to talk to you. You, you always teach me a lot and uh, we've had some great conversations. Looking forward to uh, traveling again and uh, either getting on your side of the country or you coming over on my side or we'll meet midway or, or in a country all, all different. So thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Jim. A pleasure as always. 
You know, what a great discussion with an old friend of mine, Shamir Karkle, who's starting a new endeavor. I met him during the early days of Simple, him and Josh Reich. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because he's on the cutting edge of what's happening in the marketplace. We talked to a lot of people that are ingrained in the business and have been here for a long time. But Shamir is, is a restless soul. He continues to innovate new things. And it's good to watch somebody like that in the industry to see, you know, what is the next phase of financial services? Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app and take a few minutes to provide a review of our show. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the amazing research we are doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Rohoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, embrace change, take risks, and disrupt yourself. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.